Hello, and welcome to the Church 860 podcast. My name is Pastor Chris, and I'm the lead pastor of Church 860 located in Westerville, Ohio. Our podcast will have daily episodes uploaded where we have curated some of the best Bible teaching from across the globe. We hope you enjoy today's episode. desire of our heart, Lord, that our praise would always be on our lips, that we would magnify you with all that we say and with all that we do, God. What a joy it is and how simple it is, Lord, that we were lost in desperate need of a Savior, and Jesus, you came to be that Savior. We were lost, but you found us. You redeemed us. You made us holy once again. You forgave our sins by spreading your arms on that cross. We come to say thank you today, God. We come to lift up our hearts and our hands unto you and to worship you, God. To place our trust in you, God. And to hear what you would have to say to us through your word. I do pray, Holy Spirit, that you would guide our time as we study. That we would set aside our distractions of what's going to happen this afternoon or work or the bills or the kids, Lord. And we would just set all those things aside and say, God, I want to sit at your feet today and worship you. You're glorious, God. You're magnificent. You're wonderful. Too marvelous for words. We just magnify your name today, God. What a joy it is to be together with our family. In Jesus' name. If you have your Bibles with you, I encourage you to follow along with us. That's the best way to study with us on Sunday mornings. It's good to hear the Word of God, but it's also good to see it. When we put vision and uh, audio together, we tend to glean more from it. So, uh, we just encourage you, if you don't have a Bible, grab one, buy one. Uh, we'll help you get one. There's one on the table you're welcome to take back. We want to, want to put the Word of God into your hands as well. We are in the book of Habakkuk, um, which might take you a minute to find. If you just flip your Bible open to the middle, you're close. Uh, take a right from the middle uh, by a little bit, and uh, you'll, you'll find it eventually. Habakkuk is what's known as one of the minor prophets. And what that means isn't that his message is minor in any way, shape, or form, but it's the size of the book. You would look at the book of Isaiah, you would look at the book of Jeremiah, 66 and 60 chapters, I believe. Those are major prophets because they're majorly big books. And so those are known as the major prophets, but we've been studying a New Testament epistle, which is a letter, and then alternating with a minor prophet, which is a small book in the Old Testament. So we've done Nahum, we've done Zephaniah, we've done the book of Jonah. Um, Micah. Huh? Micah. Micah, thank you. Uh, did I say Nahum? Nahum. Yes. So now we're in Habakkuk, okay? And we're hoping to hit all of these over the course of this year. We will be in the book of Habakkuk for two weeks. It's only three chapters long. We're going to look at chapters one and two today. We'll do chapter three next week. And then we'll go back into the New Testament epistle. Since we just finished 1 John, we'll do 2 John starting next in two weeks, okay? Did that give you long enough to find it? Everybody found it? Okay. So, I wanted to share with you what we know about the man named Habakkuk. We know that his name is Habakkuk. <laughs> and moving on. <laughs> literally, that's, that's kind of the deal, is there's not a whole lot known about who this guy was. We don't know what circles he ran in. We're not even sure precisely what time he was prophesying this or given this prophecy. Um, We can glean some hints from the book itself. 
some would feel that Habakkuk was a priest, part of the Levite family in the Old Testament. There were different offices that men fulfilled, the office of priest, the office of prophet, the office of king. We, some would feel that he was a priest because chapter 3 of the book is a psalm. It's a psalm. And, and so because of that, the, the Levite family, the, the, the priests in the Old Testament were the ones who wrote the songs. So some would feel that that's who Habakkuk was. As he, he was a, a guy that was musically inclined, probably a priest. I think it, the very last line of the book says something along the lines of, in, with the stringed instruments. So chapter 3 was meant to be played with music. And so... Um, some would feel that he's a freak, a priest. Um, we know approximately the time that he's writing this book. It's somewhere after King Josiah is no longer reigning. And when Josiah was reigning, revival broke out. They decided to rebuild the temple. They found the word of God. Imagine that in all of Judah, the word of God had disappeared for a long period of time. And as they begin to rebuild the temple, they find the word of God. And they're like, man, we are way off base here. We need to turn this nation around. And so they begin to do that. And revival breaks out under Josiah's reign. Well, that time has passed. And we know after that, historically, that the, the nation of Israel, the Judah, the Judah to the south especially, falls hard and fast away from the Lord. They dive headfirst into idolatry, into the worship of idols, into accepting any other of the other religions and just welcoming them into their community. And Jehoiakim, uh, Jehoiakim begins to take reign, and that's one of the worst times in the history of Judah. And God says, enough is enough is enough is enough. No more idolatry. We're going to clean this up. And he brings in the Babylonians. And that's really what the book of Habakkuk is about, is bringing in the Babylonians to set the nation of Judah, right once again. This book, these, especially the first two chapters, is a conversation. It's a conversation between Habakkuk and God. It's a little different than your typical prophetic books. It's a little different than Isaiah and Jeremiah and the books like that, in that it wasn't God necessarily telling Habakkuk, this is what you're going to tell the nation. The office of prophet in the Old Testament was the, he was the man who spoke on behalf of God to the people. The priest spoke on behalf of the people to God. The prophet spoke on behalf of God to the people. And then this prophecy given isn't so much, thus says the Lord, you shall do this, this, and this. And, and Habakkuk was to retell that. It was, this is my conversation with God. It's an intimate conversation. And then God says, hey, you should tell everybody about that. And so he does. The word Habakkuk means, or the name Habakkuk means to embrace or to wrestle with. If you have sons, you have, you've seen both of those, right? <laughs> the, it starts as an embrace and ends up wrestling. <laughs> that happens a lot. Actually, we see Habakkuk do both with God in this short letter. He wrestles with God a little bit and he embraces God in the end. And he, like we do, asks the question, why? Why, God? If you're honest with yourself, if you're honest with me right now, you've been there. We all have been there. God, why is this happening? 
That's the question Habakkuk is asking. And the re answer that God gives is astounding. So I think it's important that we study this book. In this book, we're going to watch Habakkuk go from why to worship. And that's what we want to see happen in our lives. Just lay all the cards out right now before we even read verse 1. That's what we want to see in our lives as well. We want to move from the questions of why, why God, to even if my why isn't completely satisfied, I'm going to still worship. And that's what Habakkuk does. So verse 1, chapter 1 of the book of Habakkuk, reading from the New King James, it says, the burden which the prophet Habakkuk saw. So if he was a priest, he set aside his office of priest for a time so that he could be a prophet. Like I said, the office of prophet was called to speak to the people on behalf of God. And this narrative is going to stand as a witness to the people of Judah saying that God is saying, I'm going to accomplish what, I'm going, what I said I'm going to accomplish. Habakkuk's going to complain. Verse 2. O Lord, how long shall I cry, and you will not hear? Wow. Habakkuk, you're being really honest here. We've been that honest with God, too. He says, even cry out to you, violence, and you will not save. As Habakkuk watches Judah and Jerusalem becoming more and more wicked, turning to more and more idolatry, he turns to God, and rightly so. And he says, how long shall I cry out about this, God? I've been calling out to you over this. That, that, that first cry in verse 2 is a calling out. And then he says, and you will not hear, even cry out to you. The second cry, different word there, is to scream. He's screaming at God in this moment. Violence, God! Don't you see this? His intensity is mounting, and he blames God almost. He says, you don't even hear me, do you? We need to remember, and Habakkuk does remember, God does hear. He always hears. We sometimes want him to respond more quickly than he is willing to. But he always hears. He says, Why do you show me iniquity and cause me to see trouble? For plundering and violence are before me. There is strife and contention arises. Therefore, the law is powerless and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. Therefore, perverse judgment proceeds. It really sounds to me like He's watching ABC 6 o'clock news here. He's describing what we see on a daily basis in the, in the drive-by uh, news channels, Fox, CNN. The people have fallen quickly back into idolatry after this time of revival under Josiah. The previous generation is gone. Jehoiakim now reigns, and the people fall hard and fast away from God. It's interesting, if you study revivals, revivals rarely last more than a generation. And it's, it, the Lord, the Spirit, stirs up a, a group of people, and, and for 30 or 40 years, it's strong. And then the next generation comes along, and the fire isn't as intense. Revival very rarely happens 
for more than one generation. That's what we see happening in Jerusalem. It's interesting. I haven't been to Jerusalem yet. I hope to be one day be able to go. Joe Foch, one of the guys I like to listen to, tells a story about um, one of the times he's been there and Chuck Smith was there. And Chuck's like, hey, Joe, come over here. Come over here. And it's like this excavation site, do not enter, all kinds of stuff. And Chuck's like, ah, just come on. Just come on. Come here. And he takes him back to this excavation site and he starts to show him the layers of the city of Jerusalem. And there's a black layer. And he said, this is when Babylon set Jerusalem a fire, a blaze, and they burned everything to the ground. And you can see it in the sediment. You can see the way it is. And they said, he, Chuck said that they've started to excavate out that layer, and there's all kinds of trinkets and idols and, and all these things that they're finding, uh, false gods that they were worshiping at the time. And it's just, it's in that particular layer, and it's just the history unfolding right before the, uh, their eyes. It's kind of neat. And they had revival, and they fell far away from them. The people become more and more corrupt. It's interesting, as the people become more and more corrupt, so does the leadership. The leadership becomes lax, the law isn't as potent, and, and the judicial system tends to fall apart as well. That's what he says in verse 4. The law is powerless, and justice never goes forth. I found this quote, I think I posted it at one point this week on social media. Chuck Smith said this in 1980. That's a long time ago, right? The Miracle on Ice. Believe in miracles, right? The Olympics, 1980, 38 years ago. Chuck Smith says this: When a body gets sick, or when a body gets so sick that it can no longer purge itself of poisons, that body will soon die. And when we've become so weak in our judicial system that we cannot purge our society of the poison within the society, you can be sure that that society hasn't long to live. That's where we are today. Our judicial system is a joke. The, the, it, 20, the average man that's sentenced to um, be executed for his crimes, the average man spends 22 years in prison before he's executed. $1.8 million in legal defense funds and, and what, legal proceedings to, while that man goes through. It's just crazy. And then, you know, people getting off scot-free, slap on the wrist, they double jeopardy, all, you know, all the different things. Our, our, our legal system is falling apart. And it's not blaming them entirely. We as a nation have fallen far from where we start. Judgment was coming for Judah and Jerusalem. And it may be coming for us as well. Here's God's reply. That's Habakkuk's complaint. God says in verse 5, Well, look among the nations and watch. Be utterly astounded. For I will work a work in your days which you would not believe, though it were told to you. <laughs> Buddy, God says, you got this whole pity party thing going on right now. Why me, God? You ask if I'm hearing you, if I'm working on it. Well, if I told you what I was going to do, you wouldn't believe me anyway. That's why I haven't said anything, because I know where your heart's at, Habakkuk, and you're not ready to hear this. We've all heard the thing, it's too good to be true. That's not what God is doing here. <laughs> I mean, ultimately, everything God does is good. But the pain that's going to come, the, uh, the, the punishment, the judgment that God is going to 
unfold on Jerusalem is going to hurt for a while. He says, and for I, for indeed I am raising up the Chaldeans, a bitter and hasty nation, which marches through the breadth of the earth to possess dwelling places that are not theirs. Up to this date, the Babylonians, the Chaldeans, as he calls them here, are the greatest size-wise. They are the most feared empire to date. Nothing stood in their way. If they wanted a city, they'd take it. If they wanted a nation, they would take it. And they will be an instrument in the hand of God to chastise the nation of Judah. Think about that. The most powerful nation ever created to date is just an instrument in God's hand. Isaiah talks about that. He wills the hearts of kings like a river. God's like, I'll just use them for a time. Okay, so if that's what God is doing, Habakkuk then is going to wonder, and I would wonder too, how could God use a nation that is more wicked than we are being to bring judgment? And Babylon certainly was a wicked nation. It hardly seems right or possible that God would use this nation of Babylon to bring judgment to the holy nation, God's chosen people. That's exactly what he's going to do. Put it in terms that you and I would understand. What if I stood before you today and said, hey, word from the Lord, ISIS is going to judge America. God said so. That's kind of the position. How, how you feel about ISIS coming to judge America. The nation of Iran is going to come and level America. How we would feel about that is kind of how Habakkuk feels in this moment. God, how could, how could you use somebody more wicked than we're being? Although I would question, is America or Iran, is America or ISIS more wicked in this day and age? He says... They are terrible. This is God speaking. They are terrible and dreadful. Their judgment and their dignity proceed from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards. Let that sink in. And more fierce than evening wolves. I thought that was interesting. What's an evening wolf? I mean, so I know that evidently the evening wolves are more fierce than the morning wolves. I'm guessing. <laughs> I, don't know. I know I don't drive to work nearly as fast as I drive home from work. You know, that's kind of the idea. Maybe the evening wolves are just more fierce than, you know, maybe the morning wolves need their coffee and then they become fierce. And by evening, they've got it all plugged in. Their horses are swifter than leopards. They're more fierce than evening wolves. Their chargers charge ahead. Their cavalry comes from afar. They fly as the eagle that hastens to eat. They all come for violence. Their faces are set like the east wind. They gather captives like the sand. They scoff at kings, and princes are scorned by them. They deride every stronghold, for they heap upon earthen mounds and seize it. They, they build seas walls. They, they, they overcome cities. There is, there is no defense that can stand against them. They take captives like grains of sand. No city will be able to stand. The judgment that God is going to use will be complete, use them for, will be complete. Speaking still of the Babylonians, this time most likely the king of Babylon, then his mind changes, verse 11, and he transgresses. Babylon makes a mistake, 
he commits offense, ascribing this power to his God. Babylon doesn't recognize that they're an instrument in the hand of Almighty God, and God is the one empowering them to do what they are doing. He's most likely speaking of, you've heard of the king before, King Nebuchadnezzar. King Nebuchadnezzar, he is the king of Babylon. Think about it for a second. You guys, if you've read through the book of Daniel before, in Daniel chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar has this dream. Daniel, he explains the dream to Daniel. Daniel interprets the dream. It's a bad dream for King Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel's like, oh, if this was speaking about your enemies, king, you'd be all set. But this is actually speaking of you. And he tells him, hey, don't get too proud, Neb. Recognize it was God that allowed your success. And the story goes in Daniel chapter 4, picking up in verse 29. At the end of 12 months, like, Nebuchadnezzar keeps it together for a year. All right, Daniel, I hear you. But at the end of 12 months, he was walking about the royal palace of Babylon, and the king spoke, Nebuchadnezzar, saying, Is not this great Babylon that I have built for a royal dwelling by my mighty power, for the honor of my majesty? Get any idea? Pop in his collar, pop in his chest. While the word was still in the king's mouth, the voice fell from heaven. King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you. Imagine that. And they shall drive, from, drive you from men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. They shall make you eat grass like oxen. And seven times, seven years shall pass over you until you know the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he chooses. That very hour, the word was fulfilled concerning Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from men. He ate grass like oxen. His body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. So King Nebuchadnezzar, look at this mighty kingdom that I've built. This man just, I did a move, right? <laughs> and all of a sudden he's like, I could go for some grass. His hair starts growing like feathers and his fingernails like talons. And for seven years, he acts an animal. God brings him out of it at the end of that season. And then Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, is like, God is God. And you need to worship him. This is really cool. Daniel chapter 4. So, at the end of Babylon being used as judgment against the nation of Israel, Babylon makes a mistake. God's like, I'll take care of that. So now that Habakkuk knows the plan, he's got an even bigger question or a bigger problem. God, how could you do this? How could you use this wicked nation to judge us? Are you not, in verse 12 again, Habakkuk chapter 1, are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have appointed them for judgment. O rock, you have marked them for correction. First thing I want us to note as, as Habakkuk replies, notice the intimacy there. O Lord, my God, my Holy One. And that's the level that you and I need to get to when we're grinding out our questions of why with God. It's not so much shouting from the mountaintop. It's getting in and close to him. 
saying, all right, it's me and you. You're my God. Explain to me what's going on. Help me to understand. Help me to see. That's the one-on-one level that we need, and that's where he's at. He speaks of the grandeur of God in verse 13. Your eyes are of pure, uh, you are of purer eyes than to behold evil and cannot look on wickedness. Why do you look on those who deal treacherously and hold your tongue when the wicked devours a person more righteous than he? God, the Babylonians are far more wicked than we are. How could you let this be? He is, or Habakkuk is now echoing another man in the Psalms, a man named Asaph, who said something very similar in Psalm 73. A Psalm of Asaph, it says, Truly God is good to Israel, to such as are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the boastful when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. You can go on and read the rest of the Psalm. It's Asaph wrestling, as Habakkuk is here, to say, God, I know who you are. How, how could you let this happen? How, how are you using Babylon to judge us? We know that God is holy. It says in Habakkuk that he cannot look on wickedness. When we are wrestling with God, where we need to start is with our theology of God. And we need to stand on the things that we understand about him. We know that he cannot look upon wickedness. And that's an interesting, just a sidebar real quickly here. We sing in the song, How Deep the Father's Love for Us, the Father turned his face away, right? When Jesus bears all of our sins upon his shoulders as he stretches out his arms on the cross, the Father cannot look upon wickedness. And Jesus is holding all the wickedness of the world upon his shoulders. God pours out his wrath upon that wickedness. But it's an interesting picture to say, the Father turned his face away. When we don't know what God is doing, or why he is doing what he is doing, rest upon what we do know about God. God is holy. God is just. His ways are higher than our ways. And when the why hasn't been answered, we still stand firm on the promises he has already given us. Why do you make men like fish of the sea, like creeping things that have no ruler over them? They take up all of them with a hook. They catch them in their net and gather them in their dragnet. Therefore, they rejoice and are glad. The Babylonians would move slaves in an interesting way. They would grab a string of fishing hooks, big hooks, and they would put them into the slaves, in their arm, in their cheek, through their nostril, through their lip, and then they take the next hook and put it in another guy. They take the next hook and put it in another guy, and they'd have a string of slaves. And to get them all to move, you just have to pull one. That's what he's talking about here, right? The, um, they take up all of them with a hook and they catch them in their net. It was a, a an effective way to move slaves. They treated men like animals, is what he's saying. Therefore, they sacrifice, verse 16, to their net and burn incense to their dragnet because by them their share is sumptuous and their food is plentiful. They're giving credit to their false gods through their idolatry. God, how could you allow that to happen? But you got to remember, Judah was just as bad. 
Remember the burnt land? They're all kind of vital, small, found. Shall they therefore empty their net and continue to slay nations without pity? God, are you going to let this continue? I will stand my watch, verse or chapter 2, verse 1. I will stand my watch and set myself on the rampart and watch to see what he, God, has to say to me and what I will answer when I am corrected. Right answer, Habakkuk. He's humble enough to recognize that he's the one who needs to change. He's the one that needs to be corrected. It's not that God needs to change. He's perfect. When we don't understand what God is doing, it's our perspective that needs to be corrected, not God. When we don't know what God is doing, the best thing to do is to sit still and wait on him. And that's what Habakkuk does. I'm going to go up to my tower. I'm going to sit. I'm going to wait until he corrects me. Psalm 46.10. Be still and know that I am God. I'll be exalted among the nations. We struggle with stillness, don't we? We love the input into our lives. The greatest way to hear from God is to eliminate every other voice. Turn it off and wait on the Lord. Then the Lord answered me and said, Write the vision and make it plain on tablets that he may run who reads it. Make it plain. Habakkuk, you don't need to dress this up in any way, shape, or form. Just make it so that everybody understands it. <clears throat> you don't need to teach in such a way that it's at a level that not everybody's going to understand. It's going to make people feel stupid. That's of no value, and that's kind of my philosophy. Not that I could teach on a higher level anyway, but I teach. I try. I strive to teach very simply so that we can all understand. And our invite cards say that specifically. Have you been taught the Bible in a way that you understand? We, we, we're striving that, so that everybody might understand the word of God. That's why Habakkuk, he's telling Habakkuk, make it plain. That he, may, that he may run who reads it. In other words, once you've got the message, once you understand, you run with it. Take the message. I love verse 3. For the vision is yet for an appointed time, but at the end it will speak and it will not lie. Though it tarries, wait for it. Because it will surely come, it will not tarry. Listen, he may not come when you want him to come, but he is right on time. He may not come when you want him to come, but he is always on time. His time. Verse 3 was given to me and Michelle uh, as we were considering what to do about Church 860 in the, in the winter of uh, 2016, we took a long weekend and we got, we unplugged. We went to the tower to listen uh, upon the Lord, to wait upon him and have him speak to us. We were ministering down at Calvary Chapel, but we felt like God was stirring our hearts to something. And so we took a weekend away and we just unplugged from everything to listen to God. And this was one of the verses that came out of it. We were saying, God, is this what you want? Do you want to start Church 860? Do you want us to do a work in Westerville? And one of the verses that came was verse 3. For the vision is yet for an appointed time, but at the end of the vision it will speak and it will not lie. Though it tarries, wait for it, because it will surely come, it will not tarry. He's, God was confirming to Michelle and I, yes, this is what I want to do. It's not in this moment. 
It will come. And so we left that meeting and said, okay, we believe that this is going to happen, but that wasn't the right time. We didn't know it was going to be just four months later, five months later. We'll just wait on you, Lord, until you're ready. Okay? The vision that he's giving to Habakkuk little different than the vision he gave to Michelle and I. I think ours is a good vision. I'm excited about Church 860. I'm not so sure I'd be excited about the Babylonian judgment. <laughs> Behold the proud. His soul is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. I've heard that before, right? I'm sure we all have. In fact, the New Testament quotes that verse three different times in Romans chapter 1, Galatians chapter 3, and Hebrews chapter 10. The just shall live by faith. I love verse 4. Behold the proud, his soul is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. The Talmud, which is uh, a commentary, Hebrew commentary on the law, it's volumes upon volumes upon volumes, the Talmud would say that all 613 Old, or Old Testament precepts, all 613 precepts given to Moses are summarized in this verse. Behold the proud, his soul is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. My words, you're a sinner, you need a savior, place your faith in Jesus and be made right. It's the summary of the law. Like I said, he quote, it's quoted three times in the New Testament. Romans chapter 1, verse 17. Galatians chapter 3, verse 11. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 38. And it's interesting, in that order, that's the, the order in the, in the scriptures, Romans chapter 1 focuses on the just. Galatians chapter 3 focuses on shall live. And Hebrews chapter 10 focuses on by faith. As you read through the New Testament. Indeed, because he transgresses by wine, he is a proud man, and he does not stay at home. Because he enlarges his desire as hell, and he is like death and cannot be satisfied, he gathers to himself all nations and heaps up for himself all peoples. Indeed, because he transgresses by wine and is a proud man. Nebuchadnezzar's son in Daniel chapter 5 throws this massive party. It's like a seven-day bender. It's tanked. As they're partying, he demands that the holy instruments that had been captured in the Babylonian captivity be brought out and used as party favors during this party. And that's when the writing happens on the wall. Meaning, me, me, tinkle your parson, right? Uh, tinkle your parson, not tinkle. It's <laughs> <laughs> not what it says. <laughs> Um, the writing on the wall happens and he says, your life will be accounted for you this night. And that's when the Medo-Persian Medo Empire sneaks in under the wall and, and Babylon becomes a fading empire at that point. All because he was wasted and he transgressed and is a proud man. God's going to speak five woes now. Verse 6. Will not all these things Will not all these take up a proverb against him and a taunting riddle against him and say, Woe to him who increases what is not his. 
How long? And to him who loads himself with many pledges, will not your creditors rise up suddenly? Will they not awaken who oppress you? And you will become their booty. Credit card debt. You can, you can just take that and, and that will teach you how we are to handle credit card debt. They make a fool of you when they start increasing your interest rates and you have no choice but to pay it off. This is speaking of the dangers of indebtedness. Read verse 6 and 7 again. I will take the time now. <clears throat> but you have plundered many nations, and the remnant of the people shall plunder you because of men's blood and the violence of the land and the city and all who dwell in it. Woe, this is the second woe, verse 9. Woe to him who covets evil gain for his house, that he may set his nest on high, that he may be delivered from the power of disaster. You give shameful counsel to your house, cutting off many peoples in sin against your soul. For the stone will cry out from the wall, and the beam from the timbers will answer it. Verse 12, woe, number 3. Woe to him who builds a town by bloodshed, who establishes a city by iniquity. Behold, is it not of the Lord of hosts that the people labor to feed the fire, and nations weary themselves in vain? I love verse 14. It's almost like a left turn. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Such a great reminder. There is a day coming when 860 will be fulfilled. All the people of the earth shall know the Lord is God. There is no other. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. Continuing on, verse 15. Woe to him, number four. Woe to him who gives drink to his neighbor, pressing him to your bottle, even to make him drunk, that you may look on his nakedness. You are filled with shame instead of glory. You also drink. Be exposed as the uncircumcised. If you're going to act like a heathen, may as well do it all. The cup of the Lord's right hand will be turned against you, and utter shame will be on your glory. I'm not 100% sure if he's talking about the Babylonians at this point or the way Judah was acting. But they were similar in what they were doing anyway. Are you going to do it? Just imbibe it at all. And the righteous right hand of God is going to stand against you. It's the promise. The cup of the Lord's right hand will be turned against you. Utter shame will be on your glory. There's a neat study about the right hand of the, or the cup of the Lord in Psalm 78, uh, Jeremiah 23 and 25, the Garden of Gethsemane, the book of Revelation uh, as a measurement of judgment. I think in the King James there, the, where it says utter shame will be on your glory, I think in the King James it says spewing will be on your glory. That's the result of drunkenness anyway. Get to puke it up. For the violence done to Lebanon will cover you, and the plunder of beasts which made them afraid, because of men's blood, and the violence of the land and the city, and of all who dwell in it. What profit is the image that the maker should carve it, the molded image, a teacher of lies? That was scary. What? Probably mute the computer channel. Um... Sobering. <laughs> yeah, listen up. No, that's right. That's right. Everybody awake now. All right, good. <laughs> Woe to him, verse 19, who says to wood, awake, to silent stone, arise, it shall teach. 
Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, yet in it there is no breath at all. Speaking of idolatry, and I love the way Isaiah says it. Isaiah in chapter 44, I'll read it for you now. You can just make a note in your margin there. Isaiah chapter 44, uh, like starting in verse 14, he talks about, all right, I'll summarize it. The guy goes and cuts down a tree, and he cuts it into thirds. With one third, he stokes the fire to keep himself warm. With one third, the second third of the log, he uses that for his oven to make his bread. And then with the third part of the the piece of wood, he carves it into an image and worships it. He's like, does that make any sense to anybody? You burn part of it. How do you know which part to use for the God? What happens if you put use the part for the idol in the fire? And then you got to start over. And it's, it's almost a mockery the way Isaiah speaks about this, this duel between the living God and his idols. Make sure you bring your cart so you can drag your idol along with you. Pay money to cover it in gold. Oh, don't forget to nail its feet down so it doesn't fall over. Verse 18 they, of uh, Isaiah 44. They do not know or understand. They've shut their eyes. They cannot see their hearts. Uh, they cannot understand. Their idols are silver and gold in Psalm 115. They work the works of men's hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. They have eyes, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Noses they have, but they do not smell. They have hands, but they do not handle. Feet they have, but they do not walk, nor do they mutter through their throat. And then in Psalm 115, those who make them are like them. So is everyone who trusts him. I don't think many of you have many carved images that you spend time worshiping at anymore. We don't worship those carved images and idols so much. But as a nation, we still worship mammon, which is money. As a nation, we still worship Aphrodite, the goddess of sex. As a nation, we worship Baal, nature. Contrast that with our last verse of today, verse 20 of chapter 2. For the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. That's the contrast. In Psalm 115, what I just read, we worship, or what we be, or we become like what we worship. We become like what we worship. If we worship the deaf, dumb idol, that's what you become. Deaf and dumb. But the good news is if we worship Jesus, we become more and more like him. We become, he molds us into his image. We become more and more alive. We become more holy unto him. So, are you struggling with a why God question right now? What are you doing, God? Why? First of all, recognize God's big enough to handle your question. And you're screaming at him. He did with Habakkuk. Chances are you'll get the same answer. If I told you what I was doing, you wouldn't believe me anyway. Humble yourself. 
That's what Habakkuk did. Know that it's you that needs to change. And then wait on his response. And I promise you, he will respond. He will. And like Habakkuk, let us in our why moments in life, let us strive to move from why to worship. And that's where we'll end up next week. We'll study chapter 3 next week. It'll be nearly as long as this one, I don't think. But that's what Habakkuk does. Alright, this is your plan, God. You're going to use the Babylonians? Amen. So be it. Let it be so. I'm going to worship you anyway. And we arrive at that when we have our why questions as well. Amen? Amen. Let's stand. Let's close the <laughs> I know I went through some of the references pretty quickly. If you need them, I'll be happy to give them to you. Anytime you have questions, anytime you need to look at my notes, you're more than welcome to. So, thank you, God. <clears throat> Thank you, Lord, that you are omnipresent, that you are all-knowing, that time is not a constraint for you. You know the end from the beginning. We ask the question, why? Because we don't know what's around the corner, but you do. And help us to trust in that, God. Help us to trust in you. Help us to place our faith in you. And to remember, to lean not on our own understanding. To remember that your ways are higher than our ways. And to trust you. I thank you that your shoulders are big enough to handle our questions, God. And our frustrations. And that you love us, even with our finite knowledge of you. I pray that we would take a lesson from Habakkuk and say, when we don't understand, Lord, well, we'll wait on you. Let you correct us. May we walk humbly before our Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Church 860 podcast. We hope that you've enjoyed it. If you have, we ask that you would like and subscribe to the podcast so that you can get daily updates. If you'd like to know more about Church 860, please visit church860.com. Thank you. God bless.